Spiritual stability comes from a Christ-centered mind that proactively and habitually thinks about what is good and godly. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you would open your Bibles to Philippians 4, Philippians 4, we're only going to be in two verses today, verses 8 and 9, we're finishing up our study in Philippians probably next week. In the first seven verses of this chapter, Paul has been writing about spiritual stability. If you were here last week, remember we were talking about spiritual stability, that, that, that grounded, founded uh, ability to stand strong, to be courageous, to not be tossed about with every wind of doctrine, as Paul says in Corinthians. He wants to, his, God wants his people to stand firm in the faith and be stable. And he writes about the, the spiritual foundation uh, is to be in a right relationship with God. That's really the foundation of our spiritual stability is a right relationship with our Creator God. But he also says, as you recall last week, we have to live in a horizontal harmony with God's people. We need to be counting our blessings and be thankful for the things God has given it. We have to be content with whatever God chooses to provide, as we talked about last week. And we have to choose to trust our great and good God with everything that we are and everything that we have. And as a result of that, the promise in the first seven verses is the peace of God uh, will guard our hearts and minds from anxiety and fear. This week, we're going to transition verse 8 and 9 into probably the most important thing that we need to do to ensure our spiritual stability from our responsibility standpoint. This is not what God does, only this is what we do, and that is you and I are responsible to manage our minds and guard our hearts. King Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In Scripture, the word heart usually refers to the totality of the person. Mind, emotions, will, volition. The heart really is the control center. It's the command center. It's the central core of who you are as a person. So the Bible commands us to manage our minds carefully, manage our thoughts continuously, because what we think about and how we think about what we think about determines our destiny. A spring of water, he likens it to a spring of water, produces life. Water is life, obviously, for those who drink from it. Your mind, your heart, your mind, emotions, will, is the source of your decisions. And every decision is directional. Decisions move you in a direction. Direction takes you to a destination. So every decision has a destination in mind. We talk to people routinely in life who say, gosh, I never thought I'd wind up here. That's because we made decisions that seemed like a good idea at the time, but those decisions moved us in a direction toward a destination. We get to the destination, we say, I didn't intend to be here. 
That's because we didn't consider the futurity of our decisions. Many, many people in our culture are not managing their minds. And as a result, they wind up at destinations they didn't want. Mark Twain once wrote a very interesting comment. He said, our thoughts are the most important things about us. Quote, what a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and words. Our real life is led in our head, and, we are no, and that is known to none but ourselves. All day long, the mill of our brain is grinding and grinding, and his thoughts, not those other things, are our history. See, what we think about all the time, and most of us are thinking all the time, see, I know I have a real problem here today. Most of your minds are elsewhere. I know that. Because I speak at 120 to 140 words a minute, and you can very easily process mentally 350 to 400 words a minute. Now that means you've got about 200 to 250 words spare capacity, which means your minds are going to wander off like sheep walking away from the shepherd. That's the nature of speaking and listening, because I cannot speak as fast as you can think, and if I did, you'd throw me out the door, right? So one of, the, one of my admonitions here, one of the Bible's admonitions here is we need to think about what we're thinking about. We need to mind our minds. We need to pay attention to what has captured our attention. The truth is, where we are today and who we are today, from a human standpoint, is a direct result of our habitual thought pattern. Solomon wrote a terrifying verse in Proverbs 23, 7, he says, For as he thinks within himself, so might he become, right? No, it says, so is he. You are a product of what you choose to think about. See, you can't do anything about your parentage. can't do anything about your heritage. can't do anything about your genetic inheritance, whatever it is. But you and I are responsible to manage whatever God has entrusted with us. And the most important thing God's entrusted you with is your heart. Your totality, mind, emotions, will. There's an old saying in computer programming called GIGO. G-I-G-O. What does that stand for? Garbage in, garbage out. The world is filled with people who cannot understand that if you put trash in, you're going to get trash out. And sometimes things fall out of our mouths and we go, oh, oh, that really wasn't me. Yeah, it really was you. Because I'm talking to myself, that happens to me. Whatever we put in will ultimately come out in our behavior, in our words. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, a man is what he thinks about all day long. And you think about that and you think, that seems a little counterintuitive, right? Thoughts seem to be fleeting. You know, you can think a thought and, and literally, split second later, you're thinking about something else, you're thinking about something else, thinking about something else. However, there's an old proverb, and I know you know it. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, Reap a destiny. Thought, action, habit, character, destiny. Here's why that works. 
thoughts aren't static. Thoughts metastasize into habits. And habits shape our character, and our character determines our destiny. The Bible has an enormous amount to say about our minds. As a result of Adam's and Eve's fall and their sin in the Garden of Eden, every one of us is born with a sin nature. And that means we're corrupt from top to bottom. Mind, emotions, will. That includes our mind. It's our spiritual DNA to think sinful thoughts when we're born, before we meet Christ. Our minds are not morally neutral data processing centers. Our minds have a mindset, a point of view, an attitude, a bent. Before Christ, Scripture says our minds are fallen, corrupted, and hostile toward God's. Our natural minds want to worship ourselves, not God. The Bible has things to say about your mind and my mind that most of us would rather not hear, but they're very true. Romans 1.28 tells us we have a depraved mind. A depraved mind loves evil, not good. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says we have a mind that is blind. We're blinded. We cannot see truth. Ephesians 4.17 says our minds are futile and useless. We pursue things that are not useful. Ephesians 4.18 says our minds are ignorant. That means without knowledge. And they're ignorant because our hearts are hard and we refuse to worship God above all else. 1 Corinthians 2.4 says our minds are foolish and cannot understand spiritual realities. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And I know every one of you are thinking of people for whom that absolutely applies to. <laughs> Except none of us in the mirror. I mean, God, you're talking about those other people, not Samoa, right? See, all sin begins in the mind, begins in the heart. Before you sin in action, you've sinned in thought. Sinful acts begin as sinful attitudes and actions. Jesus told us this. Mark 7, 20. He's talking to his disciples. He said they were concerned that you could eat unclean food and it would defile you. It would make you dirty. And he says, that's not the problem. The outside stuff, eating food doesn't make you filthy. He says, quote, that which proceeds out of the man. That is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. And you listen to that and you go, Jesus must be living in Bakersfield in 2021. Right? This sounds like our culture. You know something? Human nature has not changed one dime since Adam and Eve. This is who we are before we met Christ. This is a spiritual state of the human mind. We're physically born in sin in the old self. However, when we trusted Christ as our Savior, He gave us a new nature, a new mindset. Ephesians 4.22 says it's the new self. And you're supposed to put on the new self and lay aside the old self. It's like taking off an old coat and putting on a 
new coat. It's an act of the will, but it's a new nature we've been given. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that we've been given the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So we can literally think like Jesus thinks, and therefore we can act like Jesus acts. Jesus promised us. In John 14, 26, he says, but when the helper, the paraclete, the comforter, the one who comes alongside, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And I'm going to take a little sidebar here. I think much of our frustration comes in trying to live the Christian life under our own strength. And that is an exercise in frustration. Trying to do the things God expects you to do without his power is madness, but he's not asked us to do these things without the power of God. And we'll get into this here in a little bit, but one of the ways that, one of the reasons we pray all the time is we want the Holy Spirit to open our minds so as you hear the Word of God and you see the Word of God, you will understand the Word of God so you can obey it. So we've got a problem. We've got our old nature on one hand, that's the old depraved mind that we inherited from Adam and Eve, It loves evil, it's blind to the truth, it's foolish, it's ignorant, it hates the truth, it's deceitful, it exalts the self, it's at war with God. So when you talk to people about Jesus like that, that's the kind of brain that you're working with. And those who have the Holy Spirit have received the new birth, they have a new nature. They have a renewed mind that loves and understands truth that exalts God, that loves Jesus, that wants to do the right thing, is at peace with God, not war of God. And these two natures are at war inside your mind. And that's why you have headaches. (laughs) Actually, there's really only two perspectives when we look at life, that you can look at, only two perspectives you can look at life from. The first one is the way the world looks at life. You can look at life from a human, horizontal, earthly, physical point of view. The world that you interact with every day, without Christ, believes that the physical world is all there is. That things that are real can only be measured by the five senses. There is no God. There is no supernatural. There is no absolute good or evil. There is no absolute right or wrong. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no eternity. Everything in the universe came about by chance, and when you die, it's over. You go to nothing, right? Now, that viewpoint is a viewpoint that is before Christ. That is a viewpoint of the world, those without Christ. And they rely on human strength, human power, human wisdom to solve all problems. The second point of view, the biblical point of view, believes in the physical world, but it also believes in the spiritual world. Not only the natural world, but the supernatural world. The biblical point of view believes in the existence of one God who not only created the universe, but who's intimately involved in the universe in its day-to-day operations. The Bible says that good and evil actually exist. Heaven and hell exist. Absolute objective truth exists. Humanity is accountable to God and eternity is reality. The Bible sees all of life from God's point of view. 
We as Christians accept the Bible as God's record of his thoughts, plans, interactions, and interventions in human history. These are two diametrically opposed belief systems. And how you think has everything to do with how you behave. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. When we look at our culture today and you see where it's going, it is as a direct result of our, their outlook and our outlook on the reality of the world and why it's here, and that depends on how you think. Now, every moment of every day, you're either looking through one of those two lenses. You're looking at it from God's point of view or a human point of view. And you and I have the choice every day to determine which lens we look out of. Either you see life from a God-exalting, God's-in-control, eternal point of view, or you see life from a self-exalting, human-centric point of view. And how you think determines how you act. God commands us to think. And in the Christian community today, that is far more rare than you think. Isaiah 118. God invites us. He commands us. He says, come now. Let us reason together. That means let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Let's think this through. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Salvation is first a cognitive, understandable invitation to think through your sin and God's solution to your sin. This book in your lap, the Bible, is a series of verbal propositional statements from the mind of God to your and my mind. He wants to transmit his thinking to us, and that requires us to think. He's written down his thoughts, but he's also given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand his thoughts. Psalm 32.8 says, I, God, will instruct you, and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. See, the world reads this, and 1 Corinthians 2 says what? They think it's foolishness. They don't comprehend it. They think it's absolutely absurd. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we comprehend it. And the way we understand how God thinks is we saturate ourselves with God's word. Joshua 1.8. This is the command of God to Joshua and quite frankly to us as well. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's principle number one. Spiritual stability comes from daily surrendering our lives to God and saturating our minds with his word. Spiritual stability comes from daily surrendering our lives to God and saturating our minds with His Word. Now, when you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, I want you to know that verse 2 depends on verse 1. He says, I want you to surrender your bodies. 
That's a representation of everything you are. Put yourself on the altar. Surrender your life, all of your life. If you want your mind renewed, you have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ every day. Only when God has all of you will your mind be transformed. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Here's the picture. How many of you have ever made um, jello salad? Okay. Jello will form to whatever mold you pour it in, right? I mean, you pour warm jello into a mold and you'll have it'll, it'll shape itself to the mold. That's what he's basically saying. When he talks about conformity, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, like jello. He says, contrary to that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we're useless as Christians if all we do is think and act like the world does. If we behave and we think and act like them, we're not fulfilling the will of God for our lives at that point. And in order to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we have to protect our mind because that's the battlefield of life. Whoever controls your mind controls you. And I know most of you are thinking, well, I'm in charge of my mind. You give your mind away pretty easily. All of us do. We're going to talk about that. See, after we're saved, God begins to transform us into the image of his son. And we talked about last week, transformation means metamorphosis. Metamorphosis means something whose form is completely changed. And we use the metaphor, no pun intended, of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. That's a brand new form. So God wants to make us a new creature and transform our lives from what we are now into the image of his son. And that's a much greater transformation than a caterpillar into a butterfly. I just read Eric Carlyle's book on caterpillars to Boyd five times on Friday. So I get big fat caterpillars going into butterflies, right? Well, the transformation from sinful humans into the image of his son is a much greater transformation than a caterpillar into a butterfly. And the way that begins, that inside-out change, is in your mind. And he says, I want you to renew your mind. And that means to make new. What it really means is to replace the world's way of thinking with God's way of thinking. Replace the world's way of thinking to God's way of thinking, and the power source to do that is the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we, Christians, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, they're talking about Jesus, are being transformed, that's that made new again, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's job is to take the Word of God and show you Jesus. And the more you look at Jesus, the more you become like Him. That's the process of Him making us more like His Son. And He shows us Jesus by opening our minds to understand the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that's the Holy Spirit, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. 
Have you ever read the Bible and not understood it? That ever happened to any of you? Happens to me every week. Literally every week when I study, I run into roadblocks, like dead ends. I'm in a cul-de-sac, and the boy behind me is blocked, and I, I don't know where to go. And you know what happens every week? The Holy Spirit says, um, you might want to ask me for wisdom. You think that might be a good idea? So I get down and I say, Lord, I don't understand this particular passage. I don't understand this word tense, whatever it happens to be. And you know something? When he opens your eyes to see it, it is so obvious you can't believe that you didn't understand it before. Right? You ever done that? When he opens your eyes to see it, you go, well, duh, that was right in front of my face. I've been reading that for 20 years and I never got it, and now I get it, and it's so clear. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps us understand God's word and obey God's will. Now, to the lost, those who don't have Jesus, don't have the Holy Spirit, God's word appears as foolishness. But we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have a responsibility as well. I want to strongly encourage you to have a program for intaking God's word into your life daily. Eat three times a day, physically, okay, maybe four, whatever. But we should be eating God's word. You can hear God's word on the radio, on a tape. You can read God's word physically. You can study God's word and apply your mind to it. You can memorize God's word, and you can meditate on God's word. All five of which are ways to extract nutrition from God's word to get the nutrition you need in your life so that you can actually obey it. See, a renewed mind produces a transformed life. And unfortunately, our culture has moved from mental discipline to entertainment. And entertainment usually doesn't require a great deal of thought. We like amusement. Amusement literally means without thought. Have you ever noticed that thinking is hard work? It is hard work, but it's commanded. Now, God's going to tell us what to think about in, we're finally getting to the passage, verse 8. Finally, my brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes from a Christ-centered mind that proactively and habitually thinks about what is good and godly. Spiritual stability comes from a Christ-centered mind that proactively and habitually thinks about what is good and godly. Now, Paul says, finally, my brethren, he says, okay, I'm getting near the end of what I wanted to say. I'm going to kind of sum this up. And by the way, your family members, brethren, this is family members, and he says, I'm going to give you a list of things, not an exhaustive list, just an illustrative list, about things that you should habitually think about things that you should fill your minds with. Our minds are often filled with garbage. Some of it's from Satan, 
Some of it's from our old nature, and some of it is because we choose to put garbage in our minds. Now, the first way to deal with mental garbage is to stop putting it into your minds in the first place. You know the old proverb, when you're in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. That would be a good start, you know. So stop swimming in the sewer. We have to unplug from a lot of the toxic brain poison that passes for entertainment. Much of what passes for entertainment today is rat poison for the brain. It will literally destroy your ability to think clearly. Here's one of the most profound principles that changed my whole life in my 20s. You can only think about one thing at a time. So if you're focusing on the good and the godly, there's no room for the garbage. I want to tell you right now, I want you to picture in your mind a blue hippopotamus in a pink tutu riding a bicycle. Got it? Now I want you to stop thinking about that blue hippopotamus. Stop thinking about the blue hippopotamus. Stop thinking about the pink tutu. Stop thinking about the bicycle. How's it working for you? See, the only way you can stop thinking about one thing... Very good. Where's the tutu? Okay, all right. The only way... Yeah, okay. You tried. All right. The only way to stop thinking about one thing is to displace it and replace it with something else. If you want to stop thinking about a blue hippopotamus, you have to change your focus and think about something else because your mind can only think about one thing at a time. And this is where you have complete control over your mind. You can change what you focus on and what you think about. And Paul says, here's a list of things I want you to proactively and consciously and habitually and deliberately fill your mind with. And he gives us a list of eight virtues we're going to think about, and I'm going to spend most of the time on the first one. That which is true. So here's a brief definition of truth. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. I'll say that again. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Now this is a really, really critical issue because truth in our culture is vastly under debate. I'm going to give you five principles that are true about truth. Here's the first one. Truth is absolute. It's not relative. God is the eternal self-existence creator of everything, and nothing can be accurately understood apart from him. God is the creator who lives outside his universe, is the reference point for everything inside his universe. And God is the source of truth, therefore all truth is inherently theological. All truth is inherently divine, because God is the author, the governor, and the final judge of it. Let me give you a picture. Truth is the moral compass, and God is true north, and he never changes. God never changes, so truth never changes. Truth is not dependent on anyone or anything outside itself. 
The character of God is the standard of truth, the measuring stick of reality. Truth is what God is. And truth is what God says it is. And he never changes. Psalm 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. John 17.16, Jesus is praying to the Father about his disciples. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. What? Your word is truth. 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God abides forever. One of the real critical things about studying God's Word is that it never changes. It's absolute, not relative, because it comes from the mind of God. Number two, truth is inherently coherent and consistent, which means truth cannot contradict itself. If A is true, it cannot be false at the same time. It is inherently consistent. Truth is singular. It never fragments. In other words, you cannot say that evolution is true for science and creationism is true for religion. Truth either applies in every situation or it doesn't apply at all. Either that or it's not truth, it's opinion. Either God created the universe or he didn't. So truth is singular and it's non-contradictory. Number three, truth is universal. Truth applies equally to everyone, everywhere, all the time. There's no place where truth is not true, and it speaks to everyone, everywhere. Let me give you an example. The universal truth is you and I are going to die. And that's universally true for everyone, anywhere, any culture, socioeconomic, I don't care how much money you have, how smart you are, everyone is going to die. No exceptions. Now, you can refuse to believe the truth. What you will do is demonstrate it, but you won't prove it wrong. You can say, I don't believe in the law of gravity, and you can jump off a 10-story building, you can see it all the way to the ground. I don't believe in the law of gravity. You'll demonstrate the truth. You will never contradict the truth, because the law of gravity works all the time, correct? So truth is universal. Now, I need to tell you, our world, the world that hates God, rejects this entirely because it convicts them of their evil. That's just the nature. Truth always convicts falsehood. Number four, truth is exclusive. Anything that contradicts truth is false. You know what this means? There are right answers and there are wrong answers. This business that, well, all answers are equally correct. I ain't going to say what I'm thinking. Baloney. Two plus two is not subject to opinion. It equals four. Not five, not three. See, truth is intolerant of error. And that's why our culture hates it. Because truth discriminates against error. Jesus was very narrow. He said what? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
very exclusive, very narrow. And people say, well, you people are narrow-minded. And I said, really? I said, have you tried pouring Diet Coke in your gas tank and seeing if your internal combustion engine likes Diet Coke? Well, of course not. And I said, well, your internal combustion engine is pretty narrow. It only runs on gasoline. <laughs> well, yeah, in the physical world, we seem to buy that. But in the moral world, all of a sudden, we say, well, anything goes. Not true. There's not multiple ways to God. There's one exclusive way, and that's the narrow way, through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Lastly, truth is objective, not subjective. Truth is not discovered by, subject to, influenced by human opinion or perception. Truth exists outside human control. You can't invent it, alter it, change it. It's impartial, and it's unbiased. Now, where we get confused in our culture is we confuse perception from truth. When someone says, what's true for you isn't true for me, they're confusing perception and opinion with truth. It's been said, I think Patrick Moynihan said, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Now, our culture today confuses opinion and facts and says you can make up reality as you go. Oh, no, you can't. You can make up your own opinion as you go. You cannot change reality. See, the truth of it is, you can be whatever gender you want in your mind. That's fine. That doesn't change reality. You're either XX or XY. And we can dig your skeleton up 200 years from now and do a bone analysis and find out whether you were XX or XY. You're either one or the other. That's truth. Now, I'm not saying you can't have an opinion about that. You can have any opinion you want. But opinions do not change truth. Truth is objective. It's not subjective. And our culture is running into the brick wall of reality. Either you're going to do life God's way or you're going to break yourself trying. Because God's word will not be broken. Never confuse opinions with facts. It takes discernment in our world because the world, one of Satan's primary ploys is to lie. So we have a confused culture. Now, there are seven other virtues here I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but he basically says, I want you to fill your mind with that which is true. I want you to fill your mind with that which is honorable, honest, noble, worthy of respect, worthy of admiration. I want you to fill your mind with that which is right. Right means just and upright and innocent and faultless and consistent with God's standards. I want you to fill your mind with that which is pure, that which is uncontaminated, chaste, immaculate, morally clean, undefiled. I want you to fill your mind with that which is lovely, winsome, pleasing, acceptable, kind, gracious. I want you to fill your mind with that which is of good repute, which means admirable, auspicious, highly regarded, appealing. I want you to fill your mind with that which is excellent. He's talking about moral goodness and virtue. And I want, if he kind of says, if there's anything worthy of praise, which is a whole bunch of stuff, right? He says, if it's worthy of praise from God's perspective, fill your mind with that. And then he says something very interesting. He says, let your mind dwell on these things. Now, what does that mean? A dwelling is where you 
dwell, right? You habitually live in your dwelling. You reside in your residence. It's a place where you're comfortable and you're there a lot. He says, where is your mind dwelling? Where is the place where your mind feels most at home? He said, it should be most at home here. And then he says, I want you to think on these things. To think means to reckon, to count, to consider, to compute, to calculate, to take into account, to add up all the reasons, to deliberate, to deliberate, to reason in an intentional and disciplined manner. He says, you are responsible to manage your thoughts. One of the worst things you can do is... Fill your mind with the world's entertainment, quote, entertainment, and then let your mind wander. It's probably not wandering in a good direction. Like sheep generally don't wander back to the shepherd, they generally wander away from the shepherd. Now, the, the, you know, by the way, the world very much understands how this works because we have to learn to discipline our mind and put a leash on our attention. When you and I surf the web, people say, I'm just surfing the web. What you're doing is you're surrendering your time and your attention to literally thousands of PhDs in behavioral science who work for the social media platforms, and they have studied your mind, and they know how to capture and keep and direct your attention to things that their advertisers are selling. If it's free on the web... If it's free, you are the product that is being sold to an advertiser. There's no free lunch. Who's paying all the bills for all this stuff? I'm just saying, your mind is being captured by people who have spent years who understand the science of how human brains work and how you get a little dopamine hit every now and then to keep you there, right? Keep you there and suggest this and suggest that. And pretty soon you've gone down a rabbit trail, an hour and a half has gone by, and you've exposed your mind to all sorts of things you might not have intended. By the way, I'm not saying the web is a wicked thing. It's a powerful tool. I'm saying you use it. Don't let it use you. Does that make sense? Be conscious. Be thinking about it. I, I Just true confessions. I'm good at this. This is not, you know, you know a lot more about me than I know about you. I mean, come on. I used to, I have, I have an iPad, and one of the things I used to do at night, I'd, I'd like to go to YouTube, and I like sports. So I'd, I'd watch, you know, fantastic finishes of basketball games or football games. You know, the unbelievable catches or the extreme sports or these people doing stuff in the air, you know, gymnasts and all this other stuff. They're just wild. And after a few months of that, I realized that YouTube's very good at suggesting things to you. You know, once you look at one 10-second video or whatever, they'll have a whole list of other things. And I can click on this, and pretty soon, I, it took me a while to realize I'm not even in charge of what I'm looking at. They're suggesting this stuff to me, and I'm just watching what they say, what they're suggesting, because I click on it. And I'm not thinking about how much time. Well, 20 minutes later... It'd be time for bed, and of course I can't sleep because all the blue light, you know, affects your hippocampus and keeps you awake. So about two years ago I said, no more YouTube. 
before bed. Now I read, actually read books with paper and ink. You know, a, a book. You know what I'm talking about? You seen one of those? Yeah, where you, where you turn the pages and stuff, and there's no blue light, and there's no suggestions. I mean, you know, where you really have to go from sentence to sentence to thought to paragraph. It's remarkable how much you can learn if you actually do it. I'm just telling you. Anyway, all right. 2 Corinthians 10.3 talks about the battle for the mind. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're physically here, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And here's the one I want you to underline. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now he's talking about spiritual warfare. He's talking about literally warfare on the thought level. In Ephesians 6, God says, put on the whole armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Well, Satan's primary weapon is deception. That's why God commands us to saturate our minds with the truth of God's word. Taking every thought captive means you are responsible for what you choose to think about. Here's what's frightening. Most of the time, we're not aware of what we're thinking about. We're not choosing what we're thinking about. We're letting our mind wander. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying if it's wandering off the cliff morally, you need to put a leash on it and pull it back and change the focus and start thinking about the thing God wants you to think about at that point in time, things that honor Jesus Christ as opposed to plotting and scheming how you're going to do Joe Blow in next door. Because they're making noise, whatever, don't go there. So Paul, lastly, in verse 9, says, okay, you have the attitudes, you know the thoughts, now you have to do something with them. Verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Here's the last principle. Spiritual stability and peace comes from practicing Christ-like conduct that is based on biblical content. Spiritual stability comes from practicing Christ-like conduct that is based on biblical content. The reason I say that is, you want to know what Christ-like conduct looks like? It's written in black and white. We can read it. We know it's absolutely definable. The story is told of a gray-haired elderly member of a church who told the pastor after the service one Sunday, that was a wonderful sermon. Everything you said applies to somebody I know. <laughs> Elizabeth Elliot has had one daughter, and she writes that her, she, one day at, at, in the house, she heard her daughter singing Amazing Grace. Now, the daughter had a parrot, and the, the daughter was singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like you. <laughs> and we're good at that. Now, this is actual practical application. So he says, the things you've learned, he's talking about the intellectual aspect of the Christian faith. He talks about, you have been personally instructed in God's word. All these people had heard Paul preach. They had been mentored by him. They understood the life of the mind. 
The Bible communicated verbal propositional truth that could be understood. The Holy Spirit opened their mind. Paul says, you've learned these things. You've been around me, and you have intellectually comprehended what God said. And the more you read God's Word, just like you eat food, you will understand what God said. He also says the things you've received. Now, that's not talking about the intellect. That's talking about the will. You can hear lots of truth. But if you're not willing to receive it and submit to it, it doesn't do you any good. You can go to the doctor. The doctor says, I think you should take this Z-Pack. And you go, I don't take Z-Packs. Okay, well, that's fine. But the Z-Pack won't do you any good if you don't internalize it. So you have to receive the truth and submit to the truth for it to do you any good. If the student doesn't accept what the teacher teaches them, then there's, it doesn't any good. You have to assimilate and digest truth in order for it to help, just like you have to assimilate and digest food for that food to do you any good. Number three, Paul says, the things you have learned, received, heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now he's, getting, now he's meddling because he's talking about behavior. He says, you've heard me teach the truth. You understood it. You heard about my reputation. You've seen my life. You know that I've modeled what I've lived. You know I've modeled the truth I've taught. He said, you've seen me live this life of integrity. The power of a godly example is almost incalculable. The destruction of a hypocritical example is equally incalculable. If, I, if you knew right now how many people are watching your life, Right now, you'd put your depends on. There's a lot of people watching your life and you don't know they're watching. But they are watching to see if you are actually living the reality that you're speaking. They know you claim to be a Christian. If you claim the name of Christ, we need to live like the name of Christ. He says, now that you know, practice these things. And this means an ongoing, continuous action. You know, and we say an attorney has a law practice. I used to think that meant, yeah, they're practicing on me. Maybe they'll get good sometime, you know. What it means, it's their habitual, routine behavior to be involved with law. Practice has to do with a pattern of living. So he's given us these love, joy, uh, peace, humility, unity, faith, thanksgiving. He's given us this eight list of virtues. And now he says, I want you to discipline your life and put these thoughts and behaviors into action practically, habitually, regularly, daily. Make it a habit to read God's word every day. Make it a habit to pray about everything all the time. Make it a habit to show up and serve in a local church fellowship. Make it a habit to stop polluting your mind with mental garbage. Make it a habit to fill your mind with God's thoughts. Make it a habit to hang out with God's people to encourage your faith. See, all these things we know, we go, well, yeah, Brad, that's nothing new. But are we practicing those things? Are we actually doing them? At the end of the day, what you know is the point of education is action. It's not simple knowledge acquisition. It's actually practicing and being obedient to what God tells us. You know, knowing what's right and refusing to do, it's the sin of omission. James 4 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
One of the most incredible verses in the Old Testament to me is Joshua eleven fifteen. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Boy, you could put that on your gravestone. That would be pretty high praise. And by the way, this is God saying this, right? So we talk about in here, now that you know, do habitually, daily, put it into muscle and bone. And when you do that, the God of peace will be with you. Now we know that Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Most of us are not aware of the presence of God, and that's why we don't have the peace of God, because we're not always in practicing the things we need to do. Jacob was unaware of God's presence at the ladder. Samson didn't even know the Holy Spirit left him. The disciples didn't know God was in the boat with him. And as a result, they all suffered consequences. When we practice what we know is right, we will have the peace of God in our lives. And we will experience the spiritual stability that God wants us to have. Isaiah 26.3, the last one, then we'll close. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The steadfast of mind says you have a focus that stays on Jesus. And when you drift, you bring it back. And when you drift, you bring it back. And you stay focused on him, and then you experience his peace and his stability. Okay, let's summarize, and we'll do prayer and praise. Point one. Spiritual stability comes from daily surrendering our lives to God and saturating our minds with his word. Number two, spiritual stability comes from a Christ-centered mind that proactively and habitually thinks about what is good and godly. And lastly, spiritual stability and peace comes from practicing Christ-like conduct that is based on on biblical content. It is a known, Christ-like context is not something we make up, it's actually written down. You know, there's lots of ways that you can do this. Music is a fabulous way to have the Word of God in front of you all the time, because if you've got good godly music on as you're driving, as you're doing dishes, whatever it happens to be, you're filling your mind. I mean, it's just these little subtle things, but if you can do them on a practical basis, your mind is then thinks about that on all the time. Okay, we have 167 hours between the next level of instruction, so you have lots of time to practice, right? I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.